0: Hello and welcome to another series of Bible Studies. This time we're going back into the Old Testament and we're going to be considering the life and the ministry of the prophet Samuel. You may be thinking to yourself, why are we going back 3,000 years to a prophet whose words are clearly out of date? And why are we going back to texts, to manuscripts which are 3,000 years old? How are they going to help us in our walk with Christ today? Paul said in Romans 15, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So Paul says, yes, go back into the Old Testament. They will teach you. They will help you to endure. They will encourage you and they will give you hope. As we will see in many ways, Samuel was like Jesus. Now God's chosen people had begun with one man, Abraham, about 4,000 years ago. His family of faith developed into three persons, himself, Sarah and Isaac. They progressed into 12 families and these 12 families were led by the 12 patriarchs and those families grew so large that the nation was ultimately consisting of 12 tribes and from time to time these tribes had a judge ruling over them. These judges were temporary. There was never a judge over all the nation. They just led a couple or three or four tribes at a time. During those days, the days of the judges, the nation was in a terrible state. There was inter-tribal rivalry, there were chaos and killings of each other, there was idol worship going on and hair-raising sexual immorality in the high places and other places. The last words of the book of Judges say, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did what he saw fit. The Old Bible says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samuel is the bridge between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. He is the last judge and he is the first prophet in the promised land. He was highly regarded by the Old Testament writers. In the Psalms it says, Moses and Aaron were among God's priests. Samuel was among those who called on God's name. And in Jeremiah, the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to these people. You see, the name of Samuel and the name of Moses are linked together as if they're equally important and influential prophets. The New Testament also speaks highly of Samuel. In Acts chapter 3, Peter said, Beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Peter's saying to us, Samuel was speaking to us about Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 11 has that great chapter of men and women of faith. I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Samson and Jephthah and Samuel and the prophets. So Samuel was a judge, a prophet, a priest, a worship leader, even a battle advisor, as you're going to see. He was ministering long before the Romans and the Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. He was ministering back in the time when the Philistines were the chief enemy of the Israelites. English people are familiar with the year 1066 AD. Well, think of the year 1066 BC, and you've got roughly the period when Samuel was alive. The main enemy were the Philistines. Who were they? They were a military aristocracy who had migrated from Crete, and they'd settled on the west coast of Canaan, and they'd set up five city-states. They were advanced in iron technology when the Israelites were still back in the Bronze Age. Now Samuel's early life coincided with Samson and Jephthah and Ruth and Boaz. When Samson was, was tiny, when he was a small boy, those are characters from the early books in the Bible were alive. And in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, we have his birth narrative. There's no birth narrative about King Saul there's no birth narrative about King David. But Samuel warranted a birth narrative, and of course you know that Jesus had a birth narrative as well. Today we're centering upon Hannah, who was Samuel's mum. And I'm going to tell the story of Hannah in f- four scenes from our play. Scene number one, an unhappy marriage. 1 Samuel chapter one. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phineas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Elkanah, Samuel's father, was an unknown man from an unknown place. Samuel was born into obscurity. And Elkanah was disappointed because with his wife Hannah, they had had no children to carry on the family name. And so he'd married twice. He married Peninnah, and this leads the job. Peninnah had babies easily, and soon there was a growing family. But only thanks to Peninnah. Bigamy in the Old Testament is never endorsed. It's tolerated, but it always leads to trouble. It did in this family group. Think of Abraham with Sarah and Hagar. Think of Jacob with Rachel and Leah. Now, annually, Elkanah and the two wives and the children would go to Shiloh to worship. Shiloh was 20 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's in Ephraim where they lived. So they had a short journey. In Shiloh, the tabernacle was pitched, and it was served by three priests, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And for the first time in verse 3, in the Bible, we read about the Lord of hosts, or the Lord Almighty, or Yahweh of hosts, or the God of the angel armies. First time there in verse 3 of this chapter. Now when worshippers came to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices, there were some sacrifices where the worshippers shared in the meat that was offered. And when this happened, Elkanah used to give Hannah twice as much meat as he gave to Peninnah. He felt sorry for her because the Lord had closed her womb. In Hebrew thinking, in Old Testament thinking, there are no second causes. They ascribe everything to God. If God is almighty, then everything must ultimately have been allowed by God. And so they recognised that this barrenness was due to the Lord's will. Meanwhile, Peninnah, who had multiple babies, was horrid, she was a bitch. She pulled Hannah's leg, she insulted her, she made her feel rotten. And every time they went up to worship at Shiloh, Peninnah made Hannah cry. And Elkanah put his foot in it. Typical bloke, he said, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? What he should have said was, darling, don't you mean more to me than ten sons? But typical man, he got his compliment the wrong way round. Scene two, at worship in Shiloh, verse nine. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Elijah was sitting on, sorry, Eli was sitting on his chair outside the tabernacle and saw Hannah as he thought it, drunk, and he told her off. She wasn't drunk. She was making anguished prayer for a son, and she promised God that she would give him to God as a Nazarite. Now, this may remind you of Elizabeth in the New Testament, who had longed for a child and eventually was given John the Baptist, and he was a Nazarite too. What then was a Nazarite? Well, a Nazarite was a person who, a bit like a monk, took vows, but only for a period of time. You might take a vow for a month or for a year. In this case, Samuel was to be a Nazarite for the whole of his life. And the vow was never to drink wine or eat anything from, a, from the vine or from the grapes, never to touch a corpse, and never to cut your hair. And this may remind you of the Judge Samson. And she said, Lord, remember me and do not forget your servant. Now, God never forgets anything or God has a memory. He records all things. How could God forget? No, when in the Bible it says, remember me, it means go into action. Please do something on my behalf. Now, Eli Eli jumped to the conclusion that she'd been drinking A harsh conclusion. But drunkenness in the holy place was commonplace at that time. She protested her innocence. I'm deeply troubled, pouring out my soul. I'm full of anguish and grief. And Eli blessed Hannah. And she received that blessing with faith. Scene 3. Back home in Ramah. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boys weaned, I will take him and present him to the Lord, and he will live there, for always, do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Yahweh remembered her, he went into action on her behalf, he opened her womb, and she conceived and had a son, and called him Shemuel. You may know the word El means God, as in El Shaddai. Shem means here. So Shemuel, Samuel meant "heard of God. And for a number of years, Hannah did not go up annually to Shiloh for the festival. She kept Samuel at home until she had weaned him, until he was off of the breast milk and was able to eat normal adult food all the time. And she probably prolonged that period as long as she could, three, four, five, six years. We do not know how long she kept him at home. Scene four, back in Shiloh. After he was weaned, she took the boy, boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, They brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live. I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So three, four, five, six years later, they're back in Shiloh for their annual visit to the temple, to the tabernacle for worship. And the whole family went and they brought an an enormous offering. A bull, 22 litres of flour, six gallons of wine. Elkanah was clearly a prosperous man. And Hannah said to Eli, do you remember me? I was here some years back and I promised to give to the Lord any child that he gave to me. And I want to give my son Samuel as a gift back to the Lord as a Nazarite and she left her young son there with Eli. No one was to know that he would become a judge and a priest and a prophet. She was keeping her vow to the Lord. Not often do we as Christians make vows to the Lord. I remember back in the 60s in Baptist churches. If you were baptised, it was customary always to sing the hymn, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. It's a vow to spend the rest of your life following Jesus. If you got married, you promised to your spouse that you would live with them and love them and be kind to them and care for them for the rest of your mutual lives. Are you keeping your vows, vows you have made to the Lord, as Hannah did? In chapter 2, we have Hannah's prayer. In chapter 1, Hannah's predicament, but in chapter 2, Hannah's prayer. And this prayer is often known as the Magnificat of the Old Testament because it's so similar to the prayer that Mary prayed in Luke chapter 2 when God had given her the baby Messiah. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. You think she'd be saying, oh, hallelujah, thanks for the baby, Lord. No. She praises God for what he is. Yahweh has been her horn, her strength. Think of a rhinoceros charging at you. What will you be frightened of? You'll be frightened of the strength in that horn tearing you to pieces. It's It's a familiar simile in the Old Testament, speaking of strength. She can boast that God's enemies uh, um, have been put down, that God has delivered her. I I hope when she said that, she wasn't thinking of Paninna, Maybe she was. She praises God for his holiness and his uniqueness and his strength and ability. She said, God, you're like a rock. Not the kind of rock you might pick up and throw into my windscreen because of my awful Bible studies. More like the rock of Gibraltar, a rock which is under your feet, which cannot be moved a rock which is stable and reliable. God, you've been my rock, she says. And then she praises God further in verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pine away. She praises God for turning circumstances upside down. The proud and the arrogant get judged by the Lord. He weighs their deeds. God can defeat well-equipped armies and can arm the weak with strength. Those who've had plenty are going away hungry, and those who have had hunger are going away with plenty. God is reversing the natural order of things. God can give a childless woman, a complete family, a family of seven. And those who have children will pine away because their sons are going to be dying in battle. God controls life and death. He can even raise people from shale. He controls the distribution of wealth and can raise the poorest to the royal family, as indeed he will do in the case of Saul, who was a mere shepherd of donkeys, and David, who was a shepherd of sheep. God in his sovereignty can turn society upside down. God can and does reverse human fortunes. God can and does the topsy-turvy. And then she praises God because he is unshakable. Verse 9. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The earth is unshakable. God's saints, God's holy ones, his faithful ones are secure because their feet are on the rock. Those who oppose God will be shattered and God will judge them. Psalm 96 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then she says, God will give strength to his king. Excuse me, what king? There are no kings in Israel. Why is she talking about a king? And then she talks about the Lord exalting the horn of his anointed. Anointed, hang about. This is the first time in the Bible where we read about God's anointed. Now in the short term, God's anointed would be to some degree Saul and to a greater degree David. But in the long term, God's anointed will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Hannah, who knows nothing about what's going to happen in times to come, praising God for his anointed. David was the strongest king Israel ever had. He was faulty, but he never turned to other gods. And you can compare that prayer with Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 2, the Magnificat of the New Testament, and see how both these women praise God for choosing the humble over the exalted. Now, how can these verses help us? What takeaways can there be? Something something to help us to endure, something to encourage us, something to give us some hope. On a trivial level, don't be a bitch. If you're in a position of power over somebody, And you can put them down, you can insult them, you can reduce them, you can make them feel like worms with just a few well-chosen words. Don't do it. That is not Christ-like. Jesus never did it and neither should you or I. Another is that God answers prayer, but he answers prayer slowly and he answers it in his own way. Hannah was prayerful for a baby boy. She got one. In fact, as we'll find in another chapter, she got more children, three more sons and two daughters. But God answered prayer slowly in her case and in his own way. We have to recognise the sovereignty of God. When we pray that God is powerful enough to answer our prayers, but he will do so in his own way and in his own time. God disregards social status. He chose a donkey herder and a shepherd of sheep to be the first kings of his people, not highly exalted people, ordinary working class men. God disregards social status, working class, middle class, upper class, underclass, it doesn't matter who you are, God take no account of your social status. Vows made to God should be kept, Hannah kept her vow, She dedicated her son to the Lord for the whole of his life. She only saw him once a year. Vows made to God should be kept. Are you and I keeping our baptismal vow to follow Jesus to the end? Are we keeping our marriage vows to be loyal and faithful to our spouses to the end of our marriage? Don't judge people when you don't know all the facts. Eli did this. He judged Hannah and thought she was drunk, insulting her, demeaning her, putting her down. Jesus said, do not judge. You do not know all about other people. You're in no position to judge. There's nothing so exalted about you that you can look down your nose in criticism at others. Don't judge people. Praise should be mostly about what God is. When we come to praise, initially, we don't praise God for what he's done. We praise God for who he is and how wonderful he is. And then we go on to praise God for what he has done. A good example of this is is in a hymn that we, we, we used to sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. That's all about God, that verse, praising God for who he is. But in the last verse, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. The last verse is about what God has done and praises God with thankfulness for his grace to us. And then we learn from these passages that God is the supreme sovereign of all God is in control of all things at all times, didn't Jesus say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and sometimes we have to call upon our faith to rise, we are in such circumstances, under such pressure in such misery, such as Hannah was, longing, praying, desiring God to do this, that or the other how can there be a God who allows this to go on in my life, you think to yourself, no Remember the greatness of God, remember the power of God, remember his almightiness. remember his sovereignty and then peace and joy will come to you. Great is God's faithfulness to us all. We thank God. Amen.